Hi everyone! Today is the beginning of a very special mini-series that I have been planning for some time. It's a celebration of French music and specifically of French singers. I must confess in the past few weeks to a bit of trepidation. What with those French elections, we may be heaving a sigh of relative relief for the present, but there is another important election coming up, and we can only speculate about how that might turn out. Anyway, I do want to thank you all as well for your continuing support. Whatever you can do to help get the word out about the podcast is much appreciated. Also, any parties who wish to support me on Patreon, you know the spiel. Go to patreon.com slash countermelody and you can make either a monthly or a yearly pledge to help keep the podcast going. This is episode 142. I can scarcely believe it. I hope to keep it up, and your support enables me to do that. And don't forget to visit the show notes page every week, including this week. I have some wonderful photographs and, of course, always a complete set list. You will find that at countermelodypodcast.com, and you will find the podcast itself at all of your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, follow, like, all that stuff. And now, how's about Georges Thiel to lead us in with a rousing rendition of the second verse of La Marseillaise in this 1931 recording? <laughs> Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me.
And now, this week's episode. I've told this story many times on the podcast. I won't bore you with it again, but Peleas et Mélisande by Claude Debussy, a setting of the symbolist play by the Belgian Maurice Maeterlinck, is my favorite opera, and it has been from the time that I was just 10 years old. So I was a weird kid, I'm a weird adult, that remains true, will always be so till the day that I die, but some of you don't care, and I have gotten past the point of caring myself. Today is the first part of a two-part celebration of Peleas et Mélisande. I must confess the opera gets a bum rap. It's boring. It's static. Nothing happens. It's a cure for insomnia. What have you? I don't know what these people are talking about. I find the piece so full of both subtlety and pulsating drama, if you can believe that. I have a slew of recordings to offer. I think I have more recordings of Peleas in my collection than I do of any other opera. And I'm going to offer you excerpts from many of them today, and many more of them next week. Let's start with recordings by creators of their roles. The role of Melisande was first sung by the Scottish soprano Mary Garden, and here she is in a 1904 recording singing the brief arioso at the beginning of the tower scene, Act 3, Scene 1, Mes longs cheveux descendent, with Claude Debussy himself on the piano. It is said that Debussy's favorite Mélisande was the British soprano Maggie Tate, another artist from overseas who nevertheless had the French style down to her fingertips. In 1947, Maggie Tate recorded two excerpts from Pelias et Mélisande, accompanied at the piano by Gerald Moore, and the following year, at a live concert in New York's Town Hall, she performed five excerpts from Peleas, accompanied by the pianist John Rank, in which she sang all of the roles. 
So for instance, in this example that I'm going to play for you, very brief, of Act 4, Scene 4, the cataclysmic love scene between Peleas and Melisande in the garden, she sings the roles of both Peleas and Melisande. Did I mention that she was nearly 60 years old at the time of this live performance? Well, she was. This performance took place on the 15th of January, 1948. <laughs> Now, Claude Debussy and Maurice Maeterlinck did not see eye to eye about Debussy's operatic setting of Maeterlinck's play, which premiered in Paris in 1893 at the Bouffe Parisien. Maeterlinck very much wanted his mistress, the singer and actor Georgette Leblanc, to portray Mélisande. But Debussy, and others for that matter, felt that Leblanc, who was most celebrated in opera for her portrayal of Carmen, was temperamentally unsuited to the role of Mélisande. Another operatic role in which Georgette Leblanc had great success was the primary female role in Massonet's opera Sappho. In 1903, Massonet accompanied Georgette Leblanc in an unpublished recording of one of the big vocal moments from that piece, Pendant un an, je fus ta femme. Here is that very rare recording. I just wanted you to get a chance to hear the voice of Georgette Leblanc and compare it with both Mary Garden and Maggie Tate.
Leblanc finally sang the role of Mélisande in 1912. I want to play you a few short excerpts of recordings by other creators of roles in Pelléas et Mélisande when the operatic version premiered at the Opéra Comique in 1902. First is the baritone Jean Perrier, who was the quintessential baritone Martin. I've spoken about this voice type on an earlier podcast. Unfortunately, Jean Perrier did not record any excerpts from Peleas, but he did record an aria from the opera Véronique of André Messager, who in fact conducted the premiere of Peleas. Here is Jean Perrier's 1905 recording of Adieu, je pars. Adieu, je pars, c'est Ne m'accusez pas sans savoir, Monsieur Florence, je vous prie. Il est quelqu'un qui vous attend, une bonne petite fille. Before I turn to the creators of other roles, I do want to also offer you another ideal exponent of the role of Peleas, and that is the Swiss baritone Charles Ponzerat, whom we heard on the Swiss Misses and Misters episode a few weeks ago. This is a brief moment from Act 3, Scene 3, and this recording comes from one of two extended sets of excerpts that were recorded in Paris in the late 1920s for competing French labels, French HMV and French Columbia. Ponzerat was the Peleas in the HMV excerpts, and the orchestra here is led by Piero Coppola. This is A Je Respire Enfin. Dans ces énormes grottes, j'ai 
j'étais sur le point de tomber. Il y a là un air lumineux, long comme une rosée de plomb, et des ténèbres épaisses comme une pâte empoisonnée. Et maintenant, sous l'air de toute la mer, il y a un vent frais, voyez, frais comme une feuille qui vient de s'ouvrir sur les petites lames vertes. The brief but crucial role of Jean Vievre, who is heard in two scenes in Act One, was created by the French contralto Jean Gerville Réache, who lived from 1882 to only 1915. And yes, that means that in 1902, when she premiered the role of the mother of Peleas, she was only 20 years old. As her career was gaining steam and momentum, she died tragically, quite suddenly, at the age of 32, from food poisoning. She also did not leave any recordings from Peleas, but she did record a very interesting version of the Rinaldo Anne setting of Paul Verlaine's poem, Prison. Anne's setting is called Dune Prison, and in this 1911 recording, Gerville Réache takes an almost verismo approach to a song that often receives a very different kind of performance.
the role of Arkel, the king of Allemande and patriarch of this royal family, was first portrayed by the bass Félix Vieille. Vieille lived from 1872 to 1953, and therefore he first portrayed the grandfather in Peleas at the age of only 30. He was a member of the Opéra Comique Company for nearly 40 years. He also did not leave any recordings from Peleas, but he did record that bass party piece by the composer Ange, Ange Flégier called Le Corps. This recording is from 1907. The all-important role of Golot, Peleas's half-brother and Melisande's husband, was created by the bass baritone Hector Dufresne. We shall hear him in a moment, but first I want to play an excerpt by another great interpreter of that role, the French-Italian singer known as Vanni Marcoux, who recorded excerpts from the role of Golot twice, once in 1924 and once in 1927. These days, it's a little harder to find his recording from 1924, and so I am going to play you just a brief moment from that recording. This is the scene in Act 4, Scene 2, in which Golot physically abuses Melisande in the most violent manner. Vanni Marcoux here is positively incendiary. Ne mettez pas ainsi votre main à la gorge. Je dis une chose très simple. Je n'ai pas d'arrière-pensée. Si j'avais une arrière-pensée, 
Present to you extended excerpts from one, two, three, four, five scenes from the opera. I really recommend, if you don't know the opera well, even if you do, to find a copy of the libretto with a translation if you so require it. I'll put a link on the show notes page so that you can follow along with the libretto because there are so many subtleties in this text that it would behoove you to be aware of so that you can further appreciate the performances of the various singers that we'll be hearing today. The plot of the opera is fairly simple. Boy meets damaged girl. Boy marries girl. Boy takes girl back to meet his family. Girl falls in love with boy's half-brother. Boy is consumed with mad jealousy and catches the two of them in flagrante. Boy kills half-brother and strikes down wife, who dies after giving birth to their child. But whose child? C'est autour de la pauvre petite, are the closing lines of the opera, which we will hear at the end of next week's episode. Now, just to get a little more specific about the particulars of this plot. Golo, the grandson of King Arkel of Almond, has been hunting in the forest and has lost his way. He comes upon a young woman sitting at the edge of a fountain, weeping. It emerges that her name is Melisande and that she has escaped from we don't really know where, although it has been suggested that, in fact, she was one of Bluebeard's wives who barely escaped with her life. She's terrified of Golo, but she ends up following him out of the forest, though he too confesses that he doesn't know where he's going. 
I mentioned that we were going to hear Hector Dufran, and indeed, I'm going to play just the beginning of the opera in that 1928 recording of excerpts that he made. The orchestra is conducted by Georges Truc, who was a very important conductor of his day. He also led the first recording of Ravel's opera L'Heure Espagnole, and was in fact scheduled to conduct the first complete recording of Peleas when he died in 1941. When Golot discovers Melisande, you will notice a change in the recorded ambiance because suddenly I'm cutting forward 64 years to Claudio Abbado's recording from 1992, in which the two featured singers are the Belgian bass baritone José Van Damme and, as Melisande, the elusive and beguiling Maria Ewing, whom I featured in what I consider to be one of my most important episodes. She died at the beginning of the year and was, as we know, a very controversial artist who nevertheless found in the role of Melisande an ideal role for her particular talents and abilities. Just a word about the role of Melisande. She is an enigmatic figure. I have read certain critiques that suggest that she is completely amoral and is bent on the destruction of everything around her, but plays up her innocence in such a way that her culpability cannot be perceived by those around her. There are others, among them the soprano Teresa Stratus, who was one of the great Melisandes, who once suggested that Melisande finds her counterpart in Alban Berg's Lulu. These are both women on whom men project their own impressions of who she is and what she represents. Because the role is so mysterious and open to so many different interpretations, I find it endlessly fascinating. And Maria Ewing brings a little bit more backbone to this part than do some other interpreters. Là au bord de l'eau, 
Une petite fille qui pleure au bord de l'eau. Elle ne m'entend pas, je ne vois pas son visage. Mais j'ai pas peur, vous n'avez rien à craindre. Pourquoi pleurez-vous ici, toute seule Ne me touchez pas, ne me touchez pas. N'ayez pas peur, je ne vous ferai pas. Oh, vous êtes belle. Ne me touchez pas, ne me touchez pas, ou je me jette à l'eau. Essayez de la prendre.
Now we move on to the next scene, which takes place in a chamber in Arkell's castle. Geneviève, Golo's stepmother, is reading a letter that her son Peleas, Golo's half-brother, has recently received from him, describing how he met Melisande and how he has made her his wife, although he still knows very little indeed about her. Golot has stated that if they are willing to accept Golot and his new wife Melisande, that they should put a light in the tower so that when his ship passes, he will see it and know that it is safe for them to land and that they will both be welcome. And he says if he does not see that light, he will simply remain on the ship and go far, far away and never return. Geneviève consults with her father-in-law, Arkel, about whatever they should do. After Arkel delivers some observations about Golo's character and some philosophical thoughts about life in general, as he is wont to do, Peleas himself enters and asks to be given permission to go visit his dying friend, Marcellus. Arkel suggests to him that this is poor timing and that since Peleas's own father is lying very ill and possibly dying that perhaps 
Peleas's allegiances lie with his father rather than his friend. Now, I'd just like to say a word about the singers that we're going to hear in this excerpt, which, again, combines two different recordings. The reading of the letter is from that legendary first recording of Peleas that was made in war-torn Paris in April and May 1941. The conductor on this recording is Roger Desormières, who lived from 1898 to 1963. He gained early conducting experience with the Ballet Russe and conducted the world premiere of Eric Satie's Relâche in 1924. He is by far most celebrated for this recording of Peleas, which was recorded in extremely trying circumstances and which must be seen as an act of real valor and pride in the French musical heritage of all the participants. Desormières' contribution is so vital to this recording. He rings every last bit of drama out of the music in a way that has only been rarely heard since. The role of Jean Fievre in that recording is sung by the magnificent French mezzo-soprano Germaine Cernet, who lived from 1900 to 1943. She was one of those rich-voiced French mezzo-sopranos who excel in such roles as Charlotte in Werther and Carmen, both of which were among Cernet's roles. In 1942, she retired from the stage to become a nun. The following year, she died following a massive epileptic seizure. At the words, Quand dites-vous, we switch recordings and go back 13 years to those 1928 excerpts from Peleas, in which the role of Geneviève is portrayed by the French mezzo-soprano Claire who lived from 1882 to 1946, and whose father, in fact, was an expat American, though the first part of her career was focused almost exclusively on opera. Her present-day reputation rests on the recordings that she made of French melodie, including those of Poulenc, Roussel, and Onegger. She was also an esteemed teacher, and her students included several singers that we will hear later on in the episode. One of the primary reasons I'm cutting to that recording is because I also want you to hear the extraordinary French bass Armand Narson as Arkel. These days he is completely forgotten, but he lived from 1866 to 1944, and in fact sings the very brief role of the doctor in the 1941 recording. Here, however, he is heard in the role of Arkel, and his is a rolling, booming bass, but nevertheless, he pays extremely close attention, as do all these singers, to the subtle inflections of the French language. This scene in that 1928 recording simply peters out, and so I'm cutting at the words Calons-nous faire, back to Germaine Cernay, and we hear two further voices, the lyric bass Paul Cabanel, who sings Arkel, and Jacques Janson, who sings the role of Peleas. 
He lived from 1921 to 2002, and almost simultaneously with this recording had made his first complete stage appearances as Peleas at the Opéra Comique. He studied with both Charles Ponzera and with Claire Croizat, whose other students that we'll hear today include Camille Moran and Gérard Souzet. Jacques Chanson is ideally suited to the role of Peleas. He recorded the role numerous times, but this version from 1941, when he is only 28 years old, finds him in his absolute youthful prime. And I would also like to mention that he was almost obscenely handsome and appeared as well in Baroque music, operetta, and, like his teacher, was also a distinguished interpreter of melody. Voici ce qu'il écrit à son frère Pelléas. Un soir, je l'ai trouvé tout en pleurs au bord d'une fontaine, dans la forêt où je m'étais perdu. Je ne sais ni son Dites-vous 
que nous ne voyons jamais que l'envers des destinées, l'envers même de la nôtre. Il avait toujours suivi mes conseils jusqu'ici. J'avais cru le rendre heureux en l'envoyant demander la main de la princesse Ursule. Il ne pouvait pas rester seul et depuis la mort de sa femme, il était triste d'être seul. Et ce mariage allait mettre fin à de longues guerres, à de vieilles peines. Il ne l'a pas voulu ainsi. Qu'il en soit comme il a voulu, je ne me suis jamais mis en travers. Exactement le jour où la mort doit venir, il me dit que je puis arriver avant elle si je veux, mais qu'il n'y a pas de temps à perdre. Il faudrait attendre quelque temps, cependant, nous ne savons pas ce que le retour de ton frère prépare. Et d'ailleurs, ton père n'est-il pas ici? 
au-dessus de nous, plus malade peut-être que ton ami. Pourrais-tu choisir entre le père et l'ami I'm not featuring the final scene from Act One in this episode. It's the scene in which Peleas and Melisande meet for the first time. In the first scene in Act Two, there's a further encounter between Peleas and Melisande. It's a very hot summer day, and he takes her to a fountain in the park that adjoins the castle. They have a half-serious, half-playful conversation, and after Peleas asks Melisande about her first meeting with Golot that took place at a different fountain. She's hesitant to answer any questions and begins playing with the ring that Golot gave to her. Needless to say, she drops it and it goes into the fountain just at the moment that noon is striking. Melisande asks Peleas what she shall say to Golot if he asks her what happened, and he responds, La vérité, la vérité, tell him the truth. In this scene, we encounter three new Peleas protagonists, the two singers and the conductor. The singers are the Belgian soprano Suzanne Danco and the French baritone Martin Camille Moran. Moran lived from 1911 through 2010, and is, like Jacques Janson, an ideal interpreter of the role of Peleas, if anything blessed with an even more beautiful voice. But I don't want to split hairs. They are both magnificent singers, and we will hear him again next week. His Melisande is the Belgian soprano Suzanne Danco, who lived from 1911 to 2000. She is one of my very favorite singers, and she, though Belgian, is considered the quintessence of French style. She invests the words with such integrity that they take on a life and a meaning of their own. She recorded the role of Melisande commercially with the Swiss conductor Ernest Ansermé, but this recording that I'm going to play for you from around the same time, 1951, is, I think, even better than the commercial recording. The conductor here is Désiré Émile Ingelbrecht, a French composer, conductor, and writer who lived from 1880 to 1965. He conducted the first performance of Florent Schmitt's ballet, La Tragédie de Salomé. He was the chorus master for the first performance of Debussy's hybrid theatrical piece, Le Martyr de Saint-Sébastien. And in 1934, he formed the Orchestre National of the French Radio. He was a close friend of Debussy's until Debussy's death in 1918, and was considered in the post-war years especially to be the representative of how Debussy's music was meant to be performed. There are at least, I believe, 
eight radio recordings that he made of Peleas et Melisande, of which I have, I think, four of them. This one was a recording made with the Philharmonia Orchestra under the auspices of the BBC in June 1951. It's recently been reissued, and it's one of the two very best versions. I mean, there's not a bad version that Ingebrecht did, but with these two leads, Donko and Moran, I think he is inspired to the greatest of heights in scenes such as this fountain scene. The playfulness, the dramatic drive, it's all there in such vivid color. Souvent m'asseoir ici vers midi lorsqu'il fait trop chaud dans les jardins. On étouffe aujourd'hui même à l'ombre des arbres. Oh, Elle est fraîche comme l'hiver. C'est une vieille fontaine abandonnée. Il paraît. C'était une fontaine miraculeuse Elle ouvrait les yeux des aveugles On l'appelle encore la fontaine des aveugles Elle n'ouvre plus les yeux des aveugles Depuis que le roi est presque aveugle lui-même Celui-ci, on n'entend rien. Il y a toujours un silence extraordinaire. On entendrait dormir l'eau. Tous les bouffons asseoir au bord du bassin de marbre. Il y a un tilleul où le soleil n'entre jamais. On ne l'a jamais vue, elle est peut-être aussi profonde que la mer. C'est quelque chose près de vous, on le verrait peut-être. Ne vous penchez pas ainsi, je voudrais toucher l'eau. Prenez garde de glisser, je vais vous tenir par la main. Je voudrais y plonger les deux mains. Prenez garde, prenez garde, Mélisande, Mélisande. Oh, votre chemin. 
Obviously not. If she had, there probably wouldn't be much of an opera, would there? And in the next extended scene that we're going to hear, the next and final in this episode, we discover that exactly at the stroke of noon, Golo's horse, on which he was riding, took a fright and threw him, and he was rather seriously injured. But as he says, Je suis fait au fer et au sang. I'm made of iron and blood. Melisande is attending to him and discloses to him how unhappy she is. Although he is somewhat exasperated with her, he still seeks to comfort her, but suddenly flies into a rage when he notices, as he's caressing her hand, that her wedding ring is missing. He tells her she can't possibly know how important that ring was to him. So we are left as auditors, as viewers, as readers, as listeners to fill in the blanks about what that ring might have signified to him. God knows I've spent many hours thinking about it myself. At any rate, Melisande tells him that she felt it slip off of her hand when she was collecting seashells at a grotto for his little son, Ignold Goulot, demands that she go immediately and try and find the ring, and tells her to take Peleas with her. Well, of course, this only further cements the duplicitousness of the interaction between Peleas and Melisande. He does accompany her to the grotto, where they find three sleeping blind beggars. Melisande responds with fear and disgust, and tells Peleas to please let her walk home on her own. And thus ends the act and the episode. But let me tell you about the singers that we're going to hear here. At the beginning of Act 2, Scene 2, we are going to hear the French bass baritone Gabriel Paquier. He is one of my very favorite singers. He died almost exactly two years ago at the age of 95, and there has been in the planning stages, and there is going to be, over the course of this celebration of French singers, an episode dedicated expressly to him. Singing opposite Bacquier is the French soprano Michel Comment. This was a recording that was released in 1978 and passed more or less without notice, but I will say that it is one of the most vital, colorful, dramatic, surging performances of this opera that I know, and sits very comfortably alongside the versions by Desormières, Engelbrecht, and others whom we will be discussing next week. I think that Michel Clement has a voice of extraordinary beauty. I've always enjoyed her performances of Melodie. I think her recording of the songs of Messiaen is the most beautifully sung version there is. It's a lusher voice than sometimes one hears with Melisande, and it's wonderful to hear a voice of such plush beauty. I never followed the private lives of either of these two singers all that closely, so it surprised me, as I was researching today's episode, to discover that Michel Comment and Gabriel Baquier were romantically involved, though evidently not 
actually married for a number of years. I'm not sure exactly when that alliance took place in relation to this recording, but nevertheless, there it is. The conductor here is Serge Boudou, who is still with us in his 90s. He was the nephew of the cellist Paul Tortelier and led the Paris Opera in the 1960s and also the Orchestre de Lyon, which he conducts in this performance. At the words, Que veux-tu que j'y fasse? I'm cutting, albeit subtly, I hope, to one of the other Ingelbrecht radio recordings, this one from 1955, featuring two exceptional singers, Gérard Souzet as Golo and Françoise Augeas as Mélisande. It's interesting because Augeas was clearly a favorite of Ingelbrecht's She's one of the few singers who alternated between singing Ignold and Melisande, both equally successfully, I might add. And Ingelbrecht cast her in both roles, in different performances, of course. She also recorded the role of L'Enfant in L'Enfant et les Sortilèges with Lauren Mazel. I featured her elsewhere on the podcast singing La Damoiselle Lue of Debussy, again under the baton of Ingelbrecht. A word about Suzet, whom all of you know, I think, is one of my very favorite and even revered singers of all time. He didn't do much opera, and sometimes his assumptions were not 100% successful. But as Golo, he makes a profound impression. He studied this role both with Vanni Marcoux and with Bertrand Echeverry, who is the Golo on the Désormières recording and whom we will hear next week. Instead of cutting to a different performance for the scene in the grotto, I decided to stick with that 1955 Ingelbrecht recording because I wanted you to hear what Peleas sounds like when sung by an exceptionally good tenor. In general, my preference is for a baritone Martin in this part, but if a tenor has a substantial enough low voice and has an easy yet somewhat baritonal top, I say, why not? These days, it's kind of evenly divided, although they tend to give it too often to tenors who have relatively colorless voices, and it just doesn't work, because you need to have, as with the role of Melisande, the singer has to have a very strong low register. The tenor that we hear is the Canadian singer Jean-Paul Genotte, whom I featured just a few short months ago on my Canadian Singers Sing Art Song episode. Genotte was a very interesting and vital figure in Canadian musical life. As Peleas, he is one of two tenors who I think was perfectly cast in this part. Do join me next week when we finish off the opera, and I present to you examples from the much more recent past, as well as, once again, dipping back into the earlier days of recorded history as well. I'll see you then.
tout va bien. Cela ne sera rien. Mais je ne puis m'expliquer comment cela s'est passé. Je chassais tranquillement dans la forêt. Mon cheval s'est emporté tout à coup, sans raison. A-t-il vu quelque chose d'extraordinaire Je venais d'entendre sonner les douze coups de midi. Au douzième coup, il s'est précipitement et court comme un aveugle fou contre un arbre. Je ne sais plus ce qui est arrivé. Je suis tombé et lui doit être tombé sur moi. Je croyais avoir toute la forêt sur la poitrine. Je croyais que mon cœur était déchiré. Chose qui 
Que tu voudrais quitter Ainsi, il est un peu étrange. Il changera, tu verras. Il est jeune. Mais ce n'est pas cela, ce n'est pas cela. Qu'est-ce donc? Tu pleures de ne pas voir le ciel. 
Voyons, tu n'es plus à l'âge où on peut pleurer pour ces choses. de nos noces. Où est-elle Je crois... Je crois qu'elle est tombée. Tombée Où est-elle tombée Tu ne l'as pas perdue Cette nuit, la mer viendra la prendre avant toi. Dépêche-toi. Je ne sais pas aller seul. Vas-y, vas-y avec n'importe qui. Mais il faut y aller tout de suite. Entends-tu Dépêche-toi. Demande à Péléas d'y aller avec toi. Péléas, avec Péléas. Mais Péléas ne voudra pas. Péléas fera tout ce que tu lui demandes. Je connais Péléas mieux que toi. Vas-y. Hâte-toi Je ne dormirai pas avant d'avoir la vague Oh, oh, je ne suis pas heureuse Je ne suis pas heureuse
l'envie de la grotte ne se distingue plus du reste de la nuit. Il n'y a pas d'étoile de ce côté. Attendons que la lune ait déchiré ce grand nuage. Elle éclairera toute la grotte et alors nous pourrons entrer sans danger. Il y a des endroits dangereux et le sentier est très étroit entre deux lacs dont on n'a pas encore trouvé le fond. Je n'ai pas songé à emporter une torche ou une lanterne, mais je pense que la clarté du ciel nous suffira. Vous n'avez jamais pénétré dans cette grotte. Il faut pouvoir décrire l'endroit où vous avez perdu la bague s'il vous interroge. Elle est très grande et très belle. Elle est pleine de ténèbres bleues. Quand on y allume une petite lumière, on dirait que la voûte est couverte des Comme le ciel, donnez-moi la main, ne tremblez pas ainsi, il n'y a pas de danger, nous nous arrêterons au moment où nous n'apercevrons plus la clarté de la mer. Mais c'est le bruit de la grotte qui vous effraie. Entendez-vous la mer derrière nous? Semble pas heureuse cette nuit. Oh, voici la clarté. Parlez pas si haut, ne les éveillons pas, ils dorment encore profondément. Venez,
my dear friends, thank you for indulging me in my love of Pelias et Melisande. I hope that I've been able to convey some of the reasons that I love this piece so much. And if you weren't a Pelias devotee, maybe you are a little bit more now. I hope so. My dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Kuntlach.